for the worship that has already taken place this morning. As hearts and minds have turned to you with songs of praise, we ask now that your Holy Spirit would enable our worship to continue as we open your word and, and seek to know you more. As we open the pages of our Bibles, we ask that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things from your word. We ask that you would enlighten our understanding and impart spiritual truth to our hearts. We ask you to convict us of sin, any sin that we would be holding on to which would separate us from you. We ask you to forgive our sin and to renew our minds. Create in us clean hearts and renew a right spirit within us. Be filling us with your Holy Spirit. And for those who have never repented of sin and truly believed in Jesus, I ask that you would grant them repentance and belief today by your grace. Regenerate their hearts and give them the means to receive your grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. It's so good to see you this morning. I invite you to open your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 24 will be our text for this morning. Uh, what a blessing it is to be together, to be assembled as the body of Christ in Makakilo, to gather and to give God worship. Uh, and we hope that worship does continue as we open up his word. If you're a visitor, I'm just uh, so glad that you're here with us, glad that you found us. Uh, our hope is that you would be blessed, really encouraged and edified, uh, even through our worship service here this morning. Hopefully you've already been made to feel welcome, and hopefully you are blessed uh, by the study of God's word this morning. Uh, we are going to take a short break from our studies in the book of Matthew, and this morning I have the privilege of turning your attention back to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Before we look at our passage, I want to just... Uh, by way of reminder, maybe by way of introduction to those that are new, kind of uh, set before you Paul's purpose in writing this letter. If we're going to understand this text, we really need to understand the context in which it was written. Uh, the main reason that Paul wrote this letter was to teach the Ephesian church how to be the Ephesian church, uh, and that in spite of great pressure and perversion in, in the world that was around them. Uh, Ephesus was a large city in Asia Minor. Uh, really, it was uh, on, on equal par with Alexandria, Egypt, as far as importance to the Roman Empire goes. Uh, it was a, a very large city. It was home to one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, uh, the, the Temple of Artemis or, or Diana. Uh, the culture there in Ephesus uh, was in many ways very similar to the culture in which we find ourselves. Uh, the Ephesian people were totally given over to sexual immorality. Uh, temple prostitution was both widely accepted and widely practiced. Uh, parents would give up their children at a very young age to become temple prostitutes. Um, the level of perversion uh, ex exceeds what we can talk about here uh, in church, but just know that it, it was really, really bad. It, it was a bad place to be living. Uh, Paul wrote this church to that church in Ephesus while he was imprisoned in Rome. Uh, the church was likely planted by Priscilla and Aquila, uh, and then it was more firmly established by Paul on his third missionary journey where he stayed there uh, for some three years and pastored the church. Uh, Paul profoundly loved the Ephesians, and he wanted to see them grow 
in their faith, and that was part of the motivation for writing this letter. As was often the case in Paul's letters, uh, he started off with, with just deep theological truth. Uh, he really focused on, on the theology of who God is and who believers are in Christ. Uh, because of what he wrote in Ephesians, we have a better understanding of, of all the blessings that are ours in Christ. Uh, we have a better understanding of, of who the triune God is and, and how God operates in saving people. Now, we even have a better understanding of what used to be a mystery until Paul wrote that letter, uh, and the mystery was that now these former enemies, Jews and Gentiles, who now found themselves in Christ, were not only friends, not only uh, able to coexist, but they were members of the same household of God. They were fellow citizens with the saints. Uh, for us in 21st century America, that probably doesn't sound like a, a great big deal, uh, but for the first century Jews and Gentiles in Asia Minor and in Judah, uh, this, was, this was transformational truth. These once enemies were now uh, brothers and sisters in Christ. All of this theological truth uh, and much more was presented there in the first half of his letter. Then at the beginning of chapter 4, Paul would switch, he would make that switch from focusing on theology to focusing on, on more practical matters. And that's not to suggest that, that theology isn't practical. Uh, theology is extremely practical, especially when it leads to worship. Uh, that's the whole purpose of, of studying God is to, to be able to worship Him. Um, but what Paul was doing, he was explaining first in those first three chapters of who we are in Christ and then he made that switch to, to focusing on and explaining how we are to live as those who are in Christ. And so Paul started that section, that, third, or that second half of the letter, by saying, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. There's no higher calling than to be called by God. And those who have been called by God are, are to live their lives according to that calling. It's to reflect that calling. Our lives should reflect Christ in us. This really is the main point of the text that's before us. It really is the main, part, uh, the main point of the remainder of this letter. As Alistair Begg would say, new life, new lifestyle. Uh, there, there, if indeed we have been made alive by turning away from sin and turning to Jesus Christ in faith, then our, then our lives, our lifestyle, should reflect that truth. With that in mind, uh, let's take a look at our passage this morning, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 24. Follow along in your Bibles as I read aloud. Ephesians 4, 17 to 24. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about Him and, and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. 
This is the word of God. May God bless the reading of his word. In the summer of 1991, a young man, really just a boy, boarded a flight from Denver, Colorado to San Diego, California. The flight itself was fairly unremarkable. In fact, it was quite forgettable. When this young man found outside the airport, he found a bus that was waiting to take him to Navy boot camp. He was greeted by some very angry men who were spitting both profanity and saliva in his face, uh, and they were telling him that his life was about to change. Upon arrival at boot camp, this man's identity as a mullet-wearing, snot-nosed, punk civilian kid uh, quickly changed to that of a now-bald, snot-nosed, punk uh, Navy recruit. Part of that transition came in, in the taking off of the old clothing and then putting on new clothing as a sailor. Uh, and I think the Navy was very intentional in, in making these new recruits take off that old clothing, boxing it up, and sending it away. And this in itself served as a message of that old way of life is now gone. And then for the next eight weeks, daily putting on this new clothing, it really solidified this, this new identity uh, as a sailor. Now, in those days, sailors wore things like uh, dungaree bottoms, they were bell-bottom jeans, uh, and light blue chambray shirts, and, and white Dixie cup hats, and they had their names stenciled on, on all of that. Uh, they looked like sailors, and we liked it. Um, yeah, well, in this part, of his letter to the Ephesians, uh, Paul is using some of that same type of language as far as the putting off and, and putting on. In his call for purity in the church, Paul is using that language to describe what the Ephesians were like uh, before coming to know Jesus, and then the stark difference of uh, as living as new creatures in Christ. In verse 22, we saw it there. Paul said that the Ephesians were to put off the old self. It's like casting off those old garments. And then in verse 24, he said that we're to put on the new self, like putting on new clothing. We'll use those two commands as, as the sermon points in this morning's outline. So if you're taking notes, you can write this down as point number one. Uh, you must put off your old self. You must put off your old self. Let's take a look at that old self according to Paul. Uh, the life apart from Christ uh, it can be seen as, as a downward spiral. Uh, John Stott says that the spiral starts with, with a hardness of heart, uh, and then it moves to a darkness of heart, and that leads to deadness. And ultimately, that kind of deadness results in, in recklessness uh, or complete abandoned uh, or unrestrained abandonment, abandonment to sin. We see each of these in verses 18 and 19, and, and we'll look at them one by one. Uh, look again at verse 18 and 19 with me. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the, their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. Paul says that the unbelievers darkened understanding uh, and separation from God is due to their hardness of heart. It starts with a hardness of heart. The word Paul uses there is used to describe a rock that is that even harder than marble. 
In our vernacular today, we would refer to this as a, as a heart of stone. Uh, this describes the attitude of unbelievers toward God. Uh, there's both an inability but also a, an unwillingness to respond to God's truth that He has revealed in His creation, uh, in His Word, in His Son. In a parallel passage in Romans 1, Paul says that these unrighteous men, those who are rejecting God, by their unrighteousness, they, they suppress the truth. God has revealed the reality of his, his existence and everything that He's created. But because of their hardness of hearts, unbelievers are engaged in an, an aggressive suppression of that truth. They prefer to think that their very existence as a result of random chance uh, rather than a loving creator. That hardness of heart, well, then it leads to, to darkened understanding, a darkened understanding. Paul's, Paul's not saying here that unbelievers are incapable of, of understanding secular matters. Um, in fact, there are a lot of people who are completely lost who have fantastic intellects. Uh, they're far more intelligent than me, uh, more intelligent than most of you, uh, no offense. Um, but when it comes to spiritual matters, they, they have a darkened understanding. They can't grasp any of the truth of Scripture. Back in Romans 1, again, in verses 21 and 22, Paul said that the unbelievers became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. Then in the beginning of our passage this morning, Ephesians 4.17, Paul said that unbelievers walk in the futility of their minds. When the mind is given over to sexual immorality, and that's what Paul is referring to here in Ephesians 4, that such minds are not capable of substantial, rational thought. And God designed our, our minds in such a way that we can understand who He is. We can understand the truth that He's revealed to us. But the mind that's given over to sexual immorality understands none of it. And, and there is no seeking after the things of God. They have darkened understandings. And that darkened understanding then leads to deadness. Those living apart from Jesus Christ are the walking dead. Uh, they're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. And that word ignorance, it, it doesn't mean that there's some sort of innocent lack of knowledge. No, this, this is a willful, culpable ignorance. They're spiritually dead in their trespasses and sins because they choose to be separated from God, then that spiritual deadness, it, it finally breeds recklessness. Uh, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That word callous there, it, it means that they have, they've lost the ability to feel. They have no more feeling. And not only do they not have any problem or embarrassment or shame with the sin that they commit, but they actually flaunt that sin. They celebrate their sinfulness. The word callous there was used to describe those who were so flagrantly immoral that the whole purpose of their immorality was simply to try to bring about outrage from others. We see that in our own culture today. Not only are they unbothered by the perversity of their sin, but, but they're greedy to practice more and more and more of that sin. They're always looking for some sort of new experience. What Paul is describing here is the behavior of those who have no thoughts of God. 
there's certainly no fear of God because in order to have a fear of God, you have to entertain thoughts of God. And that's not the case with these. Those who are alienated from God are, are marked by hardness of heart, by darkness of heart. They're spiritually dead. They're recklessly immoral. And they're unrestrained by any thoughts of God. I recently came across an interview. I think it was published in The Guardian. Uh, it was with Stevie Nicks. Uh, some of you might know who Stevie Nicks is. She was one of the singers for a band called Fleetwood Mac. Um, in this interview, she set about to try to justify, try to explain why it was that she had an abortion uh, when she was, uh, back in 1979, uh, she had conceived a baby with Don Henley, who was the lead singer uh, from the Eagles. Listen to Stevie Nicks' words explaining why it was that she had an abortion. She said, if I had not had that abortion, I'm pretty sure there would have been no Fleetwood Mac. There's just no way that I could have had a child then, working hard as we worked constantly. And there were a lot of drugs. I was doing a lot of drugs. I would have had to walk away. And so the logical conclusion, if we're, if we're following Stevie Nicks' logic here, is that if you liked Fleetwood Mac's music, uh, you could thank her for killing her unborn child because without that abortion, there would be no Fleetwood Mac. We're not going to go through the entire interview, but I, I want you to kind of hear even more of this futility of thinking on her part. She went on to say, I knew that the music we were going to bring to the world was going to heal so many people's hearts and make people so happy. And I thought, you know what? That's really important. There's not another band in the world that has two lead women singers, two lead women writers. That was my world's mission. Stevie Nicks clearly uh, did not have thoughts of God influencing her decision to kill her unborn child. Uh, abortion was legal. The culture was telling her how important it was for a band to have two lead female vocalists. This music, uh, this platform for strong women, this was all much more important than the human life that was growing inside of her. Stevie Nicks, in the futility of her thinking, she did such a good job of justifying that abortion uh, that she went on to have three more abortions uh, across the span of her singing career. And my point in bringing this up is, is not to shame Stevie Nicks or to, to be judging her, but to highlight what futile, godless thinking looks like. Uh, the truth is that none of us have to look beyond our own mirror to see what people who are futile in their thinking were like. I could give you countless examples of, of futile thinking from my own life. This is why Paul commanded with such strong words that the Ephesians uh, must no longer walk like the Gentiles. No longer means that at one time they did walk like the Gentiles. We walked like the Gentiles. Paul says that's the old self. Uh, Paul testified in the Lord that we cannot live like that anymore. Paul said that is not how we learned Christ. In verse 20 here in our passage, it serves as the dividing line in that text, and it really serves as a dividing line in the life of every Christian. But that is not the way you learned 
Christ. Paul goes on to say in verse 21, assuming that you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. In these two verses, Paul, Paul uses uh, different, or three different terms, uh, teaching terms, pedagogy, no, I'm not going to say that, teaching terms um, uh, to des- describe salvation um, in Christ. Uh, and, and it says that Jesus was the subject of the teaching. It says that he's the teacher of that teaching, and it's, uh, he's also the atmosphere of that instruction. First, we'll look at Jesus as the subject of instruction. We see that in verse 20, you learned Christ. The idea of learning a person, not just learning facts or information about a person, but actually learning a living person, that idea doesn't exist anywhere else in the Greek Bible. In fact, it doesn't exist anywhere in pre-biblical Greek writing. This was, this was a new concept, a, n- a new thought. Now, and I think the significance of that is that Paul was teaching that to, to the truth uh, of, about learning about Jesus is not enough. Uh, even though he had already d- ascended to the right hand of the Father, the Ephesians learned the living Christ. True conversion comes from knowing Christ, knowing his righteous life, uh, knowing his sacrificial and atoning death, knowing his glorious resurrection, his faithful promise to return. In his prayer to God, uh, Jesus prayed, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Christians are Christians, not because they have gained some sort of book smarts about Jesus Christ, but because they have learned Jesus himself. Next, we see that Jesus is the teacher. This one's a a little bit more difficult to see, particularly if you're using the ESV, uh, because the translators there added the word about in verse 21, assuming that you have heard about him. That word about doesn't exist in, in the original text. Instead, it says, assuming you have heard him. As Paul was teaching the Ephesians about Jesus, there was a sense in which they heard Jesus as he was expositing the truth, as Paul was expositing the truth to them. F.F. Bruce says that Christ himself is the Christian's teacher. Even if the teaching is given through the lips of his followers, to receive the teaching is in the truest sense to hear him. In John 27, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I'm not talking about a Sarah Young or or a Joyce Meyer kind of hearing Jesus, okay? Don't don't get me wrong. Don't don't go and tell Pastor John that you heard God talking to you and Pastor Ryan said that it was okay. Uh, That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is that when true teaching, when true preaching takes place, there's a sense in which it is the Spirit of Christ that is presenting that teaching to you, that is giving that teaching from His truth, from His Word. And so Jesus is the subject of the instruction. He's also the teacher of the instruction. And lastly, Jesus is the atmosphere of that instruction. The Ephesian believers were taught in Him, as the truth is in Jesus. We live in a world that has been questioning objective truth for for millennia. Pontius Pilate asks, what is truth? In our day and age, we, we now attach personal pronouns to truth. Uh, I have my truth. You have your truth. Uh, even if they completely contradict each other, it's okay. It's still truth. 
But the Bible is quite clear that truth is found in Christ. And Jesus identified himself as the way, the truth, and the life in John 14, 6. In today's passage, we're told that truth is in Jesus. When Paul was reminding the Ephesians that they had learned Jesus, that they had heard Jesus, that they had been taught in Jesus, he was referring to the time when they had heard the gospel message and they believed it. Now, these terms describe the moment of their salvation. They heard the gospel. Paul refers to that as the truth here. They might, that might have happened when, when Paul was preaching to them. It could have happened when somebody else was teaching. Whatever the case, they heard the truth. They were taught in that truth, and they responded to that truth in faith and belief, and they were saved. And in light of that truth, Paul commands the Ephesians to put off the old self, uh, to be renewed in the spirit of their minds, and, and to put on the new self. We've already looked extensively at the, the idea of putting off the old self, so let's look at the renewing of the mind and, and the putting on of the new self. Point number two, you must put on the new self. You must put on the new self. But before we can put on the new self, we, we must be renewed in the spirit of our minds. Our old way of thinking will not enable us to put on the new self. Uh, transformation must take place. Paul wrote in uh, his letter to the, the Romans, chapter 12, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by what? By the renewing of your mind. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God what is good and acceptable and perfect. Re remember that old way of thinking. There was futility of thought. And there was darkened understanding. There was hardness of heart. There, there was alienation from God. There was recklessness in pursuing every kind of impurity. As followers of Christ, we, we cannot think like we used to think. Uh, our minds must be renewed. There has to be transformation of our very way of thinking. How is our mind renewed? That's a really important question to ask and uh, even more important to answer. Notice the command that is given. It's given in the passive voice. Uh, he says that you need to be renewed in the spirits of your minds, or in the spirit of your minds. Paul didn't say renew yourself in the spirit of your minds. He said be renewed. We must be being renewed. That means that we're to be availing ourselves to somebody else doing the renewing, uh, namely Holy, the Holy Spirit. This is why we have to faithfully uh, attend worship services and hear the Word of God preached. We must participate in, in a local body of believers where we're hearing the Word taught and, and our mind is being renewed in that teaching. We need to sit under the teaching of a faithful expositor of the God's Word. We, we need to be involved in, in group Bible studies where we're sharpening others and, and others are sharpening us. We need to daily be saturated. We need to be consuming and, and receiving and meditating upon God's Word and allowing that to dwell in us. Paul said that we're supposed to let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly, uh, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. There is no easy button when it comes to mind renewal. Uh, and there's no point at which we can finally say, okay, I am renewed now. No more renewing for me. I've been completely renewed. No, the reality of, of living in a fallen world is that we are daily bombarded, like Pastor Rob was saying, we are daily bombarded by misinformation, by disinformation, by lies, uh, by darkness. 
we have to go through a, a process of spiritual renewing. This has to happen. Uh, daily, when we are looking at these little rectangles, the flashy things, we're getting messages that directly conflict what we're reading in the Scripture. Uh, when we're looking at the bigger screens, that the information that's presented to us conflicts with what we're reading in here. Uh, if we're hearing the talking heads, they are telling lies that completely contradict the truth of Scripture. We have to be renewed in our minds. We, we cannot let the world influence how we think. Jesus prayed for this very renewing in, in John 17, 17, when He said, Lord, uh, sanctify them in Your truth. Your Word is truth. The renewal of our minds will enable us to better put on the new self. Verse 24 says, to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The new self is not new because it's gone through some sort of repair and, and it's, it's like new. Uh, no, we are, we are completely new creation in Christ. There is a complete newness to us. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Behold, the old has gone away, that the new has come. Paul told the Philippians, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. To live is Christ. There is a newness to our life. Our, self, our new self is created after, ver, after the very likeness of God. We receive the old self at birth, and we receive the new self at, at, at our rebirth when we trusted in Christ, when we repented of sin, that which was once darkened and ignorant and futile and hardened and callous and reckless and greedy and impure is now completely a new creation created after the likeness of God with true righteousness and holiness. Why would we not want to put on this new self? The answer is sin. Sin gets in the way. That's why Paul is, is so intentional about telling us to put off that old self. Uh, he says, similar, uses similar wording in other letters. In Romans chapter 13, verse 12, Paul said, So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. And just a couple verses later, he said, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Galatians 3.27, Paul said, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. The entire third chapter of Colossians uh, is really helpful and runs parallel to, to much of what Paul wrote here to the Ephesians. We heard in, in Colossians 3.9, Paul said that you, you have put off the old self with its practices. Uh, that old self, it, it included practices like anger, and wrath, and malice, and slander, and obscene talk that included things, everything that's earthly in you, like sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. That is all to be put away. But we need to realize that, that simply putting away the old self does not automatically bring on the new self. There needs to be an intentional putting on of the new self. We absolutely have to mortify the sin that is in us. We have to get rid of that. But we also have to put on, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. 
And if one has a complaint against another, that we would forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must forgive. And above all these, we are to put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Kent Hughes gives a, a, a very simple but helpful example for his readers. Uh, he said that, I may have lost my temper with my children, and, and I've repented of that, and, I, and I've set that aside, but I've not completed my responsibilities until I have actually put on love and patience toward them. It's not enough to put off the old self. We must be renewed in the spirit of our minds, and we must put on the new self. We must become who we already are in Christ. That's the, the progression of thought here. The old has passed. Behold, the new has come. And as we take a step back and, and just kind of consider this text in its entirety, we can see that the difficulty is not in understanding what Paul has written here, right? I mean, we, we would affirm with Peter that some of the things that Paul wrote are difficult to understand, uh, but this isn't one of them. Uh, the difficulty is not in understanding. The dif difficulty is in obedience and, and practicing, doing what Paul says to do here. As followers of Jesus Christ, we cannot experience uh, any kind of identity crisis. We can't have one foot in the old way of life and one foot in the new. Uh, we can't be camouflaged souls where we come to church and are like one person and then are blending in with the world when we're away from the church. We can't have that identity crisis at all. We, our, our thoughts, our actions, our lifestyle, they must always reflect Christ. We can't fall back into our old way of thinking. The unbelieving mind is completely unconcerned with pleasing God. It's totally unconcerned. It has no thoughts of God. But the believing mind, the Christian mind, must always be thinking about the things that please God. Always. Whether it's eating or drinking, we ought to do it to the glory of God. We ought to be thinking when we're, when we're dressing ourselves in the, mor in the morning, is what I'm wearing going to be pleasing to God? Uh, when we think about what we eat or, or drink, uh, how much we eat or drink, is that, are we going to be glorifying God in our body by, by eating and drinking these things, by, by looking at the things on television? Are, are we going to be glorifying God if I watch this? We, we have to be thinking these thoughts. These thoughts have to be really identifying or uh, informing the way that we live our lives. The unbelieving mind is not concerned with pleasing God, but we have to be always. There's a lot of confusion in the church today about what it means to be a genuine follower of Christ. Some people think that since they grew up in a home with believing parents or because they had grandparents who were believers in Christ, that somehow they are automatically followers of Christ themselves. Maybe it passed through their DNA, uh, maybe it's somehow through their blood. Some people think that uh, because they had an emotional response to a sermon one day, uh, or because they heard a song that they really, really liked, uh, and it caused a, a warm feeling inside that, that since that happened, uh, that they're saved now. Other people think that because they walked down an aisle or because they prayed a prayer some 30 years ago with lives completely unchanged afterward, but they prayed that prayer, so of course they are saved. Others think that because they had a dream uh, about Jesus that now they woke up and are, are saved because of it. I want to be perfectly clear. Salvation only happens when the Holy Spirit of God 
steps in and regenerates a heart and enables that person who hears the gospel message, hears the good news about Jesus Christ, they hear it, they repent of sin, and they believe in Jesus. They put their full faith and trust in Him. The only way a person is saved is when they come to know Jesus, not to know about Him, not to have some sort of book smarts about Christ, but actually to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. And that means that they know that Jesus died an atoning death in their place to pay for the sin that they committed against a holy God. They know that He was crucified, that He was buried, that He was resurrected on the third day according to the Scriptures. They, they know that salvation is found in no other name than the name of Jesus. Your parents cannot save you. Your DNA cannot save you. Your pastor cannot save you. Your burning belly cannot save you. Your dreams cannot save you. Your comparative goodness, uh, when compared to a Stevie Nicks or, or an Adolf Hitler, or whoever it is, uh, your comparative goodness will not save you. You cannot save yourself. You must be renewed in the spirit of your mind. You must cast off the old self. You must put on Christ. And all of this is only by God's grace through faith in Christ. Let's pray. Father, if I have said anything, anything this morning that is contradictory to the truth of your word, I ask, Lord, that you would either strike it from our memories immediately or find a way to correct it as quickly as possible. We thank you for the blessing of, of time spent in your word. We trust that you will use this time to accomplish your perfect will. Draw us closer, Lord, to you and make us more like Jesus Christ. This for our good and for your name's sake, for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.